Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about Frederick Douglass, the political activist, abolitionist, suffragist, speaker, writer, statesman, so much more. It's so rare uh, when looking at historical figures. It's so rare to find someone who is thoroughly and, and essentially completely on the right side of history, but that's what Frederick Douglass is, particularly when it comes to people who are, you know, outspoken with their political views. It's not often that, you know, we can go back 100, 150 years in history and find someone whose views have stood the test of time and still hold up today. But Frederick Douglass was right on just about every account. On e- with every issue that he approached, his views today would stand up to modern scrutiny. Douglass was an outspoken critic, in particular, of the institution of slavery within the United States. And he had more reason for most than being so dead set against slavery as he himself began his life enslaved. Douglas spent the first two decades of his life as a slave before ultimately escaping and then spent the rest of his life tirelessly campaigning for the abolition of slavery and then after that, civil rights for African Americans. He wrote and spoke extensively in support of expanding the rights and opportunities of African Americans in all areas from voting to education, but his efforts weren't limited to racial issues either. He took up the cause of women's suffrage too and supported those campaigning for women's rights. Uh, and during his travel, he also supported things like Irish nationalism and the the Irish's right to autonomous rule. In short, this bloke, as I say, was on the right side of history about more or less every issue he came across, which is such an incredible feat for someone who lived, you know, over a century ago. Douglas's story is absolutely fascinating, going from the horrors of slavery to becoming one of the most highly regarded and respected figures in U.S. history. Douglas's entire life was given over to improving the lot of the oppressed and the voiceless. He was a powerful orator. He was a gifted writer. He flew in the face of prejudiced views, uh, the views that were widely held by racists up and down the United States who believed that African Americans could never live as independent, self-reliant citizens. And because his writing was so extensive, Happily, we have a very good idea about most aspects of this bloke's life. In telling his story, I've decided to include several passages of his own writing, his own speeches, so we can hear from Douglas himself on the experiences that he had and the issues that he faced. But before we begin, I want to say a big thank you to alert listener Ken Cottrell for the suggestion uh, to to read about uh, Frederick Douglas. So good on you, Ken, mate. I'd read Douglas's books many years ago. It was great to come back to them again. So much to talk about today, so much that we're actually going to split the episode into two. Uh, this week, we'll talk about Douglas's time as a slave, as well as his eventual escape. Next week, we'll move on to talk about his very successful career as an activist, reformer, author, speaker, and everything else. So let's get underway. Here we go. Let's get stuck in with the story of Frederick Douglass. Let's get to it. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to, uh, well, it's not absolutely certain when Douglas was born, actually, as uh, slave masters back then didn't keep particularly complete records of things like when their slaves were born. Countless untold thousands of lives were lived in appalling misery, in brutal conditions, and these poor wretched souls lacked even basic 
aspects of an identity like a birth date. And when it comes to Frederick Douglass, the best we can do, the best he could do was guess. Douglas himself later estimated he was born in February 1817. One of his later biographers contends that it was actually the year after February 1818. Uh, but whatever the case, he was born in the US state of Maryland in Talbot County. It's on the shore of Chesapeake Bay. Uh, and at birth, he was named Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey by his mother, Harriet Bailey. Um, but tragically, as was so often the case amongst those who were enslaved, he was separated from his mother at a very young age. He later wrote that he had no memories of ever seeing his mum during daylight hours. The only time that he ever saw her was at night when she wasn't toiling in the fields. Um, and then once they were separated, once they were taken away from each other, he only saw her a few times before she died when he was still a small boy. So very, very sad start to his life. Um, after his mum died, he lived with his maternal grandparents. His grandma was also enslaved while his, his grandpa was free. And you might be thinking, well, what about his dad? I mean, what about his paternal grandparents? You might be wondering about that side of his family. Well, this is, of course, another one of the horrors of slavery. It is not nice to think about this at all, but his father was very probably the man who owned both him and his mother, a bloke whose name was Aaron Anthony. Truly, utterly despicable, but all too common amongst slaveholders. By law, as Douglas tells us, a father could and would sell his own child as a slave without a second thought, without a shred of remorse. Here's what Douglas said. <clears throat> of my father, I know nothing. Slavery had no recognition of fathers as none of families. That the mother was a slave was enough for its deadly purpose. By law, the child followed the condition of its mother. The father might be a freeman and the child a slave. The father might be a white man, glorying in the purity of his Anglo-Saxon blood, and the child ranked with the blackest slaves. Father he might be and not be husband, and could sell his own child without incurring reproach if in its veins coursed one drop of African blood. Also despicable were Douglas's living conditions. As a young kid, he slept on a dirt floor in a sack head first, and he would stick his feet out the bottom of the sack and rest them near the ashes of a fire to keep himself warm. He wore a rough linen shirt. He had to steal eggs and bits of corn in order to stay fed. And just like so many other slaves at the time, he had very little to look forward to, just a life of unending cruelty and torment and backbreaking work. But Douglas's life turned out a little bit differently. And the events that would eventually lead him to seizing freedom began when he was just six years old or thereabouts. At the age of six or so, he was also taken away from his grandparents. So first he's taken away from his mum. Now his grandma and grandpa. This poor kid has been through so much at such a young age. And after being taken away from his grandparents, he ended up in the ownership of a different bloke, a bloke whose name was Thomas Auld. Auld sent Douglas to Baltimore to work for his brother, Hugh Auld, and his wife, Sophia. And look, obviously, I am not in any way attempting to defend any aspect of slavery. It continues to this very day to be one of the most disgraceful stains on humanity's collective consciousness. However, it is still accurate to say that this move to Baltimore was definitely an improvement in living conditions for Douglas. He ate regular meals. He slept in a bed. He was given proper clothing to wear. Douglas himself later wrote how lucky he felt to have moved to the city where slaves could almost live like free people. Again, I don't, this, I don't, I don't bring this up to minimise or diminish the horror of slavery, which, as I say, even today is a blight on our civilization. I mention it to point out that most slaves lived a life of such horrific conditions 
that having access to food and clothes and a bed was seen as luxury by someone who had, who'd, who'd been enslaved all his life. Anyway, Douglas worked as a slave for Hugh and Sophia Old, as I say. And then when he was around 12 years old, Sophia began to teach him to read. Now, Douglas took to reading with enthusiasm, but it wasn't long before Hugh, uh, Hugh Old stamped out Sophia's lessons, telling her that teaching slaves to read would only make them seek freedom. Now, Douglas heard this. He was there when Hugh was lecturing his wife about the dangers of letting slaves learn to read. And he later described hearing Hugh tell off his wife like this as the first decidedly anti-slavery lecture he'd ever heard. He was convinced by what Hugh said that literacy would be the most important step that he could take towards his freedom. Here's what he said. I instinctively assented to the proposition, and from that moment I understood the direct pathway from slavery to freedom. It was just what I needed. Wise as Mr. Old was, he underrated my comprehension. And the very determination which he expressed to keep me in ignorance only rendered me the more resolute to seek intelligence. So even though Sophia's reading lessons stopped, even though all of his reading material was confiscated, even though he was ordered not to continue to read, of course, that's all Douglas did. He would read anything and everything he could. Pamphlets, essays, poems, newspapers, books, advertisements. He he would try to sneak looks at boring work-related documents when he could access them. He practiced reading and writing in secret. He hid it from Hugh and Sophia. But as he headed into his teenage years, he became well and truly literate, which, as Hugh had anticipated, supported a fervent desire to secure freedom. Freedom, however, would elude Douglas for at least the next couple of years, and things took a turn for the worse for him when he was around 16. He was taken away from Hugh and Sophia Old by his owner Thomas, and he was sent to a so-called slave breaker to work in the fields. This was quite common whenever slaves were seen to... uh, be attempting to rise above their perceived station, they would be sent to particularly cruel and hard slave masters who would attempt to, as I say, break them. And this man, Edward Covey, had a reputation for doing just that, breaking slaves. And Covey was brutal and merciless with poor Douglas. For the rest of his life, Douglas would bear the scars that Covey gave him from the horrific and frequent whippings. But eventually, however, Douglas stood up for himself. At great personal risk, he fought back against Covey. He got into a physical fight with him and won. And Covey stopped going after him after that, after he had been taught a lesson, as is the case with more or less every single overbearing bully that there has ever been. Covey was a huge coward underneath it all. And so Douglas didn't remain with him all that long after he had had his ass handed to him. Covey was worried that his reputation would be ruined if the story about him getting a bollocking from a 16-year-old got about. And so uh, Douglas was sent off to work for a different bloke, William Freeland. Now, Freeland wasn't as cruel as Covey, but this didn't stop Douglas's determination to secure his freedom. And while he worked for Freeland, Douglas rounded up a group of other slaves who shared this burning desire for for their own liberty and made a plan with them to run away. They planned to steal a canoe, paddle across the Chesapeake Bay, and then flee to the free states in the north. Now, unfortunately, this plan... It came undone. It seems like one of the conspirators lost his nerve and confessed the plan. And this ended with Douglas being locked up and returned to Thomas Old, who, of course, still owned him. But before he was returned to his owner, Douglas and the other conspirators as well were treated absolutely dreadfully. 
They were tied up and flogged and dragged behind horses and then locked up to await further punishment. And eventually, once Old arrived, he made quite an interesting decision. Perhaps as a result of seeing how badly Douglas had been treated, he decided to return Douglas to Baltimore. He considered sending him to the Deep South, where his chances at escape would have been immensely reduced, but no. Instead, Old sent him back to Hugh and Sophia in Baltimore instead. And Douglas was very happy about this. His life in Baltimore had been a lot better than being made to work on plantations. So he returned to Baltimore quite willingly. Although, of course, his desire for freedom was burning as bright and as hot as it ever did. His failed escape attempt notwithstanding. And before long, after returning to Baltimore, Douglas was again looking for new ways to make his escape once and for all, and to leave his life as a slave behind. In Baltimore, Douglas picked up work as a caulker, someone who makes sure that ships are watertight by patching seams in the hulls. Uh, now, he didn't work for the Alds. It's not as if the Alds own a, owned a shipwright business or something like that. No, rather, as was the case with many slaves living in, uh, in cities like Baltimore, Douglas would go out to work each week, just as a free person might, and he would be paid his wages, again, just as a free person might. Although, of course, slaves would be paid significantly less than, than, than people who were free. Um, but then once he received these wages, he would return back to the household with Hugh and Sophia and he would hand his wages over to them. And just to give you an example of the exactly how badly Douglas was being exploited here as a slave... On one particularly successful week where Douglas brought home quite a bit of cash, he brought home $9, which was quite a lot of money for him at that stage. Uh, he handed it over duly to, uh, to Hugh Auld, and Auld gave him 25 cents back and told him to, quote, make good use of it. Now, obviously, you can see how terrible and inequitable that situation is. He's just worked all week in the shipyards and he's brought home $9 and he's received a quarter, not a quarter of the $9, a literal quarter, 25 cents. But uh, I tell you what, Hugh advised Douglas to make good use of this money and little did he know that Douglas would go on to do exactly that. Douglas was by now more determined than ever to make his escape north and so he was saving every last cent he could in order to cover the costs involved in such a, a dangerous journey. But he wasn't alone in attempting to make this journey. In 1837, Douglas fell in love with a woman named Anna Murray. Uh, Murray had been born to former slaves. They'd been freed a month before she was born, meaning she too was free. And Murray supported Douglas's plans to escape Baltimore and the Olds, uh, and she supported him in ways that put herself at considerable risk as well. She did laundry for a living, and so she stole some clothing for Douglas to use as a disguise and gave him what money she could afford to as well. She went as far, she went as, far as selling her own bed to raise money for his escape. But even with his savings, even with his money, even with the disguise, attempting to escape a slave state as a slave was a very, very difficult and extremely dangerous thing to do. I mentioned before how in the deep south of the US, you'd have a near impossible time of escaping purely because of the distance you'd have to travel to reach the free states. And this was a risk that Douglas ran in, in, in his earlier escape attempt. Old might have just sent him to the deep south and that would have been that. 
you'd think, oh, things certainly would be easier, right? The nearer you get to the free states, the easier it would be to make an escape as you've just got across the border and then you're in an area where, you know, slavery isn't legal. But it's not quite as simple as that, right? You might think that things would get easier as you approach the borders with the free states, but as you drew right up close and right up against them, the danger was actually unlike anywhere else because bands of slave catchers patrolled the borders looking for anyone who might be an escaped slave, hoping to cash in on the rich rewards for bringing them back to their masters. And additionally, all modes of transport across free and slave state borders were very closely monitored and anyone suspected of potentially being a slave, which is to say anyone who was African-American, would be closely questioned and investigated if they attempted to cross state lines. It wasn't enough just to say you were free. You had to have the papers to prove it or it would be assumed, if you didn't, that you were an escaping slave and that was that. And Douglas knew this. He had done his research. He was well aware of the dangers he faced in attempting to flee northwards to the free states. And he also knew that even after reaching somewhere like Pennsylvania or New York State or any other of the free states for that matter, it wouldn't be over. Slave catchers could still come into those states, attempt to prove that he was an escaped slave and drag him back south. So this was the peril that any slave faced in attempting to seek their basic human right of liberty and freedom in the United States. But Douglas was still absolutely determined despite the dangers. He had worked very patiently to gain Hugh Old's trust in being allowed to go out, work as a caulker, collect wages, dutifully hand them over week in and week out, months and months and months. Douglas spent cultivating this this, uh, reputation for trustworthiness as a slave, someone who was going to play by the rules and do the right thing by Hugh Old, who didn't really suspect that Douglas was brewing this plan to escape. But this plan slowly but surely came together as Douglas gathered the money he'd need, the the clothing that that he'd been lucky enough to get from Anna Murray and her laundry service and everything else that he required in order to make this this daring escape attempt. And finally, on the morning of the 3rd of September, 1838, everything was in readiness. His money saved, his costume ready, and the papers that he would need to cross the border were all prepared. And so Douglas made his escape from Baltimore. And here's what's really interesting. For quite a long time, that was the story. Douglas refused to tell anyone how he managed to escape. He, he, he wrote three autobiographies and the ones in, the first two, the ones in 1845 and 1855, very deliberately left out the entire story of how he escaped. And you're thinking, well, what's going on here? This is the most interesting part. Of course, everyone wants to know how he actually made good his escape from Maryland across into Pennsylvania, into New York State, eventually into Massachusetts. How did he do it? But he wouldn't tell. And there's a very good reason for this. He didn't want to imperil other slaves using the same method he did, exploiting the same weaknesses he did. He didn't want to expose those weaknesses in the slaving system. He didn't want to identify and therefore endanger those who had actually helped him. As interesting as the story of his escape might have been, he realised that to tell it would directly harm others who may very well have been attempting their escape as well during those times in exactly the same method that he did. So it took a, it took a very long time for the world to uncover how Frederick Douglass actually made his escape. Uh, it was years and years down the track that he finally told everyone the story, as we'll come to. But uh, if we zoom out a little bit and actually talk about 
the dangers that uh, that anyone, not just Frederick Douglass, but anyone faced if they attempted to escape as a as a slave from one of the states like Maryland. Uh, Douglas himself had done his research. He knew what the dangers were, of course, and he wrote about these dangers, gave us a perspective on 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 what he and other uh, other people who were attempting to escape slavery faced in trying to cross over the border. Douglas later wrote about how in Maryland, for instance, the crime of murder was seen as less serious than the crime of aiding and abetting escaped slaves or attempting to escape yourself. And he was not interested in getting those who helped him escape into any trouble with the law and so kept it secret for many, many years. Here's what he wrote. The publication of details would certainly have put in peril the persons and property of those who assisted. Murder itself was not more sternly and certainly punished in the state of Maryland than was the aiding and abetting the escape of a slave. Many coloured men for no other crime than that of giving aid to a fugitive slave have perished in prison. And so, as I say, for decades, Douglas kept his escape secret. And the story of how he made it out was never publicly known. It wasn't until, as I mentioned, his third autobiography written in 1881, revised in 1892, that revealed the full story, which I'll tell you now. I mentioned before that States like Maryland made African-Americans carry around papers that proved that they were free, or if they didn't have these papers, they would assume they would be assumed to be slaves. Now, these papers required constant renewal at quite a significant cost, uh, and so the whole situation was just as bad as, the, as you would think it would be. Uh, but interestingly enough, these papers actually became an invaluable way for slaves to escape the state. And you'll think, well, hang on a second, how? How is that possible? These, these papers are specifically designed to make sure that slaves can't pass themselves off as, as free people. They're designed to make sure that those who are enslaved stay enslaved and aren't able to cross state lines and, and, and seek their freedom. How can these papers possibly be a tool of escaping slaves? Well, this is all happening before the advent and widespread use of photography. We are a very long way away from ID photos being attached to identification documents. And so, as a result, these papers that freed people would use in order to prove the fact that they were indeed free, these papers would describe the holder rather than have a picture of them. And these descriptions were usually vague or general enough that they could apply to more than one person, as long as you were about the same age, roughly the same size, had similar looking scars, which was not uncommon amongst former or current slaves. And essentially, as long as you more or less looked like the papers could possibly be yours, you could pass someone else's papers off as your own. And so, at great personal risk, free African-Americans used to lend out their papers to slave-seeking freedom who would use them to evade detection as an escaped slave and then return them by mail once they reached a free state. This was so dangerous for everyone involved. If the ruse was discovered, both the free person and the enslaved person would be heavily prosecuted. So those who were lending out their papers were putting their lives into the hands of slaves attempting to escape. People like Frederick Douglass. Although, interestingly enough, Douglass didn't use a normal set of papers. 
He actually used a slightly different type, uh, papers that were lent to him by an African-American sailor. These were identity documents that confirmed him as a free man, not the regular type of document that uh, that most free people would, would, would use, ones that reference the fact that this bloke was, uh, was not just a free man, but also a sailor. And this proved to be a very, very good move, as we will come to in due course. But in order to pass himself off as a sailor. Remember the clothes that Anna Murray had nicked from her laundry service for Douglas? Well, when I talk about bringing this plan together, Douglas was very, very careful with exactly how he tried to pull this off. The clothes that Murray had stolen were, in fact, a set of sailor's clothes, the the type of uniform that a sailor would wear on a ship. And so armed with this sailor's uniform, armed with this paperwork, Douglas hoped to pass himself off as a sailor. And as I say, this would prove to be a good move. This particular element of the ruse would actually be instrumental in making sure he arrived safely to the north. Anyway, it's the morning of the 3rd of September, 1838. Douglas gets up, he gathers his things, and to Hugh and Sophia, it seems like he's just about to head down to the docks once again for another day's work as a colker. However, he doesn't head down to the shipyard after leaving the, the, the household in Baltimore for what would ultimately be the very last time. Instead of going down to the docks, he heads to the train station. He changed into this sailor's outfit before he arrived on the way. And uh, once he got there, Douglas didn't go up to the ticket office and, uh, and buy a fare for his journey to Philadelphia. No, instead, he waited around on the, on the platform for the very last moment, just before the train uh, was, was about to pull out of the station, and then he jumped aboard. And there's a good reason for this. Had he gone to the ticket office, there would have been a ticket seller there who had had the time and, of course, the inclination to examine the papers presented to him minutely and make sure that this bloke standing in front of him was who he said he was. And while the description uh, in these papers that, that Douglas had, while, while he roughly met this description, he certainly wasn't an exact match for these papers. And he knew that if he handed them over to a ticket seller, someone who had a bit of time to sit there, look through them properly and and hold him up to a bit of scrutiny, he knew that the ruse would come unstuck. And this was not a risk that he wanted to take as it would imperil both him and his attempt to escape, but also the sailor who had been generous enough to, to lend him these papers. So instead, Douglas jumped on the train at the last minute, just as it began to leave, and moved to take a seat in the carriage reserved for African Americans to wait for his next trial. His heart was racing. He knew that a single misstep, one piece of bad luck, would land him in all sorts of trouble as an escaping slave. But he sat there attempting to remain composed. Here's what he wrote about this experience years later. Though I was not a murderer fleeing from justice, I felt perhaps quite as miserable as such a criminal. The train was moving at a very high rate of speed for that time of railroad travel. But to my anxious mind, it was moving far too slowly. Minutes were hours, and hours were days during this part of my flight. Then, eventually, the conductor arrived in the carriage to come through and check all the, uh, all the free papers of, of all the other passengers. But as he approached Douglas, Douglas made no move to pull his papers out and show the conductor. He's sitting there, dressed in his sailor's uniform. The conductor comes over and says, mate, hey, where are your papers? And Douglas replied by saying that he didn't carry his free papers around with him because he never took them to see with him. He never needed to. But instead, what he had was the was this documentation that proved that he was a sailor and a free one at that. And here's where this is important. Here's where it's important that he borrowed sailor's papers and didn't just have regular the, the regular papers that belonged to, to, to free people at the time. 
Around this time, all along the East Coast, there was a wave of very positive feelings towards the maritime industry, towards sailors in general. Walking about a town in a sailor's uniform would afford you a decent level of respect and gratitude from just the general public because sailors were thought of so highly. And Douglas had decided that the best way for him to make good an escape was to pose as a sailor, that this would aid him in, in avoiding investigation. And sure enough, this is exactly what happened. The conductor barely took more than a glance at Douglas's very obviously official sailor's papers before selling Douglas a ticket and moving on to the next passenger. Just because of the the mood of the public at the time, sailors being held in such high esteem, Douglas was able to coast on that wave of good feelings and not have his papers minutely examined. This was a very calculated risk by Douglas. He knew that despite not answering the description on the papers exactly, he had a better chance of avoiding detection by posing as someone less likely to invite invite further scrutiny. And of course, there's another element to this as well, which harks back to his career as a corker. Douglas could also talk the sailors' talk, despite having never been to, to despite having never been to sea. He'd spent his entire career working with ships. He knew all the parts of a ship back to front. He knew how sailors talked and behaved. He could play the part of an old salt if he needed to, given the fact that he'd spent much of his professional life around sailors and, and, and men of the sea. And so this ruse was a very clever one. And it paid off on the train where the conductor moved on without a second thought. But as the train trundled towards Delaware and the, and the Susquehanna River, danger mounted again. Douglas had to disembark from the train and cross the river by ferry. And on this ferry, there happened to be a young bloke that Douglas knew from Baltimore. And as this bloke approached Douglas to have a chat with him, Douglas realised that he would give everything away if anyone was to overhear this conversation or if this young bloke asked him any questions. And so he had to shake him off before they could get too far into a conversation. And Douglas went and tucked himself away on the other side of the ferry, hiding away from this bloke so he wouldn't give the game away. But then when Douglas arrived on the other side of the river and boarded the next train that was waiting to take him further north as the train was sitting there, Douglas looked out the window over to another stationary train opposite, a southbound one, and saw someone else that he knew. And this time, it was someone that he had actually worked for in Baltimore. Someone who, if he spotted Douglas, would immediately recognize him, raise the alarm, and alert everyone to the fact that Douglas was an escaping slave. And as Douglas sat there opposite this window, all it would have taken was for this bloke to look up and look out the window and spot Douglas in the opposite train. But luckily, he didn't. And the train began to move off northwards and Douglas's journey towards freedom continued. But as he looked around the carriage, after having come within a heartbeat of disaster, he saw, if you'll believe it, another man who he recognised from Baltimore. And this man had definitely seen him and definitely recognised him and knew Douglas was a slave on the run. And this man did nothing. He sat there in silence after spotting Douglas and didn't say a word. This bloke knew Douglas. That was beyond a doubt. Douglas later wrote about how he sat there with his heart in his mouth, wondering if this man was going to raise the alarm and, and turn him in as a fugitive slave. But he didn't. This bloke secured his place on the right side of history by sitting there minding his business, 
and saying nothing at all. The train arrived in Wilmington, Delaware, and once again, Douglas disembarked, boarded a ferry, this one taking him all the way to Philadelphia, a free city in the free state of Pennsylvania. From Philadelphia, he then got an overnight train to New York City and arrived there on the morning of the 4th of September, bringing about not just an end to his 24-hour journey, but the beginning of a new life as a free man at the age of just 20 or 21. Douglas later wrote, I have often been asked how I felt when I first found myself on free soil. My readers may share the same curiosity. There is scarcely anything in my experience about which I could not give a more satisfactory answer. A new world had opened upon me. I lived more in one day than in a year of my slave life. Douglas had made it. He had made it to the free north and his entire life waited before him. And what did he do with this freedom? Well, a whole bloody lot, let me tell you. But that is a story for next week. And I hope you'll join me as we talk about the life of Frederick Douglass, not as a slave, but as a writer, lecturer, campaigner, activist, and a foundational part of the US civil rights movement. Douglas would spend the rest of his days doing everything he could to abolish the institution of slavery and to aid those who suffered at its hands. And not just that, he also fought for women's rights and for social causes beyond the US as well. As we mentioned, he became a successful speaker, a famous writer, and in time was one of the most well-known figures in the United States when it came to abolition, social reform, race relations, and so much more. There is so much for us still to talk about with the life of Frederick Douglass, and I'm looking forward to getting across it with you next week as we conclude the story of this remarkable man. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is where we'll leave the story of Frederick Douglass for now. Pick it up again next week. I do hope you'll be here as we finish off the incredible story of this incredible man. Uh, until then, of course, all the boring housekeeping stuff coming your way. So sorry to do it too. Not really. You can opt out. It's a very opt-out experience here. It's great if you listen, but you don't have to. Uh, nothing too new. Halfhousehistory.net. That's the website. Uh, I, I, I want to thank all the people who've been writing in. Uh, there's been a, a, a bit of an influx of listeners recently, and I want to thank you all for uh, for jumping on board the Half House History train, but particularly for those who are writing in with new topics. Uh, it's good to get across them all. Uh, I, I, I'm never not wanting new suggestions. And, and I do apologize that I don't reply to all the emails that I get, but uh, rest assured that I read every single one and uh, and, I, I, and I research more or less every single suggestion uh, I'm given. I, I, I do get a lot of suggestions that we've already covered, uh, so which is fine. It's nice to know that I was on the right track with those episodes. Um, but if you're ever unsure that uh, if you come, come across a good idea and you're like, oh, geez, how is, how is Riley not cover this? there's a chance I might have. So whack it into the search bar, halfhousehistory.net. You can find the uh, the, the little search bar there to, to check if I've already done an episode. Um, but don't, look, don't let that put you off getting in touch anyway. Uh, it's so wonderful to get so many emails and, and, and it's it's excellent to hear from listeners with, with feedback and topic suggestions and whatever else. So thank you to everyone who's writing in. And thank you, of course, to the Patreons, patreon.com slash halfhousehistory if you want to join their exalted ranks. Uh, there are people there who are gaining, even now as we speak, early access to episodes, show notes, uh, uncut episodes, all the 
burps and farts and frustrating mistakes that I make as well. If you want to get across that, you can sign up. And there is Patreon-only exclusive merch. The only way to get that is via Patreon. So if you want to sign up, you can uh, you can start to work towards getting that today. Uh, and if you don't want to sit around and wait for exclusive merch, you can go and get the inclusive merch that's available at the, at the, uh, at the merch shop. Always looking for, for new ideas with the merch shop as well. We refreshed the merch store a couple of weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago. Uh, always looking for new ideas. So if you've got something historical related or something funny or interesting or silly that you might uh, you might want in a T-shirt, let me know. Who knows? If it's a, if it's a, a good idea and relatively easy to put together, I might end up whacking it on the shop and then you can, uh, you can walk around with what is essentially at that stage a custom T-shirt made just for you. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to this dumb podcast week in and week out. Uh, if you're an old listener, a new listener, a medium listener, it's great to have every single one of you. I'm going to close out the show with a question posed on Reddit. And look, for those of you who are sticking around for the Reddit question, you know that you are very sincerely the true fans of the show, the most appreciated listeners, the ones who stick around all the way to the end. You are the real MVPs, and thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you immensely. Uh, anyway, this one comes to us from Redditor Duck underscore Boots, which is a name that I very much like. Uh, and it's a question about Maryland, of course, where Douglas was born. And this question uh, from Duck Boots is probably for those of an American persuasion or those who have an understanding of uh, two-letter state abbreviations, uh, for those who are going to miss this one otherwise. Uh, Duck Boots asks, why are so many towns in Maryland also doctors? Doctors.